All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to um, Redemption Church this morning. My name is Reggie Horn, and uh, I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption. And this morning, in just a few minutes, uh, we're going to continue in our series on the Psalms of Ascents. The Psalms of Ascents are the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Um, there are a group of Psalms that pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem to worship at certain festivals during certain times of the year would sing together as they're going up towards Jerusalem. That's our best understanding of why they're included in the book of Psalms. But before uh, we dive into that, uh, Psalm 133 is exactly where we'll be this morning. Um, I just want to take a moment and uh, address some of the things that happened yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia. I don't know how many of you guys were paying attention yesterday. Uh, I was sort of watching the news all day long, uh, paying attention on social media. And as the day went along, uh, I, I have to say my heart just sank, right? The things that happened yesterday are so heavy and so evil um, that it would be uh, inappropriate for me as a pastor and for us as a church to not address this from the stage this morning. And so I'm just going to dive right into it head on and, uh, and just declare and state that white supremacy, white nationalism, and racism are completely and undeniably evil and anti-gospel. And the hate and the bigotry that was exposed and expressed yesterday in Virginia is nothing less than satanic. Not only are those things characterized by pride and legalism and a denial of the fact that every person is created in the image of God, they're anti-gospel because they fail to realize and grasp something that is essential to the gospel. Our society is built around divisions and disunity and differences, and life is often viewed in an us-versus-them way. But the gospel teaches something entirely different. The gospel teaches that there's no us versus them. The gospel teaches there's no good people and bad people. The gospel teaches we're all bad and Jesus is good. And the only way to be right in the eyes of God is because of the work of Jesus on the cross. The work of a dark-skinned, Middle Eastern, Jewish man. And Jesus' work on the cross serves to erase that chaos and that disunity and those differences that divide and separate us. So there's no longer room for an us versus them mentality when the gospel is in view and the gospel is in focus, right? As Christians, we have had our playing field leveled. It's not us versus them. Because of the gospel, it's us. It's because of Jesus that we can be right in the image of God, and there's nothing that can be added to that. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, there is no place for racism. There is no place for pride. There is no place for evil in our lives. And if it does exist, let's call it what it is. Let's call it evil. Let's call it sin. Let's call it something from the very pit of hell. And instead, let's confess and repent of that evil. Right? Even now, in this moment, let me ask you to examine your own heart to determine if there is anything at all within you that would serve to make you think you are superior to anyone else for any reason whatsoever, whatever, be it skin color, be it wealth, be it where you're from, be it education, whatever. 
And let me ask you to remember these words from Paul about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to its own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, guys, that's weighty and that's heavy, right? But it's the reality of the world that we live in right now, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be called out, right? It's sin. There's no place for that in the life of a believer. And because of Jesus, we can confess and repent and be made right in the image of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We'll move on with Psalm 133. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that because of Jesus, we can be made right in your presence. God, our world is desperately fallen and in need of you. And God, we, we hold and we are the stewards of something so precious, your gospel, the truth, that you did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And God, this morning I pray that you would allow us, even as we look at the book of Psalms, to celebrate your gospel, that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. God, as we examine Psalm 133 this morning, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of grace and mercy, an instrument of love and an instrument of the gospel. God, that Jesus would come into focus, that Jesus would be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you through Jesus and because of Jesus alone. And so, God, I ask all this and pray all this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to move on through Psalm 133, like I said, but part of what I want to bring into focus as we dive into Psalm 133 is uh, something that we want for us as a body of believers here at Redemption Church, and it's something that we've called gospel fluency or that we're calling gospel fluency. When we talk about gospel fluency, we're talking about the gospel being integral to every part of our life, to the everyday things of life. And so part of the way we become fluent in the gospel just like we would become fluent in a language, is that we intentionally uh, rehearse it and remember it and immerse ourselves in its truth so that we see how every part of life, from the mundane to the magnificent, is affected by the gospel. In this series, we've recognized that our faith tends to act sometimes as if God is not present and near, even though that we know He is, right? And the Israelites scattered in exile on the way to Jerusalem to worship whenever they were back would have felt this same now but not yet tension. And so the songs spanning from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, these psalms of ascents, they serve to lift our eyes and lift our heads to look to Jesus, to look to our Holy Father. Because in him there's hope, there's peace, there's courage. And there's hope for this journey of discipleship that we're on. And so in Psalm 133, together as we're on that journey, I want to look at it 
to see how the truths of Psalm 133 affect our lives on a daily basis. About 20 years ago, it'll be 20 years ago this December, I got married. And um, I got married right down the Broad Street out here at Curtis Baptist Church a few blocks up. And uh, when we were done with the wedding, we had our wedding reception in the church gymnasium. And the church gymnasium looks exactly like you would expect a 40 or 50-year-old church gymnasium to look like. It was real fancy. It was not. But that's where we had our wedding reception. And I'll never, re- I'll never forget having this happen. There was this maintenance guy who worked at Curtis at the time named Fuzzy. And Fuzzy looks exactly like his name says. Big white fuzzy beard, big white flowing hair. He was just sort of eccentric. To be, um, to be honest, and he was a maintenance guy there. And the night of our wedding reception, he was working, and I had known Fuzzy for a while. We had all known Fuzzy for a while. And, uh, and, and the night of the reception, he, during the wedding reception, he pulls Amy and I aside, and he takes us over to a table that's set up for people to sit at and eat and do all these things, and he decides to give us an object lesson on marriage. And so he takes the salt and pepper shaker and sets it on the table, and he takes something and puts it behind the salt and pepper shaker. I don't remember what it was. It could have been a gravy boat. It could have been the flowers. I don't know. But he says, marriage is like this. It's like two horses pulling a carriage, right? And you both have to be pulling in the same direction. And he's like, moves the salt and pepper shakers, right? They both have to be moving in the same direction for the marriage um, to be successful because if you move in opposite directions, the gravy boat's not going to go anywhere, Right, And it was odd, and it was a weird time to give us that object lesson, um, but nonetheless, he was making a point about unity, a, a very valid point about unity. And so as we get to Psalm 133 that we're looking at this morning, um, we see that this psalm was written by King David, and in this psalm, David is talking about the preciousness and the goodness of unity, We don't really know exactly when David wrote this psalm. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary about the psalms, actually thinks that he wrote this psalm right after the Lord had finally given Israel into David's arms, and he had finally united the kingdom after Saul's death and was king over Israel. Um, That makes a lot of sense, but we don't know if that's that's what really happened. Uh, We know that David knew a lot about disunity, Because he spent many, many years in a civil war prior to becoming king. And then after he was king, when he made some serious mistakes and and, and quite frankly just sinned, um, experienced a lot of disunity later in his life. But, but, But we don't know when David wrote the psalm. We don't exactly know why he wrote the psalm. But we do know that in the psalm, David is prizing unity. And so let's read it. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. I kind of wanted to do an object lesson this morning and bring Ben up here and pour oil on his head, but he wouldn't let me do it, so you can see it roll down his beard. We'll get to those images in a minute. That's quite unique, right? That's a very unique image. We'll get to it. But think with me for a minute about David's life. 
One of the stories that immediately comes to mind when I think about David, and it's probably true of most people, is the story of David and Goliath. Uh, it's a pretty well-known story, right, even outside of Christian circles. And so David wins this battle with a sling and a rock against a Philistine giant that nobody else would even dare fight. But that victory didn't actually bring David the unity that maybe he expected would come from it. Instead, Saul got jealous, right? And there's people around who begin to sing songs. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And so Saul becomes jealous, and David's life gets kind of crazy. And so he spends, like I said earlier, he spends his time running from King Saul, living in the wilderness, seeking refuge from Saul and the people that would support Saul and that would want to take David's life. And like I said, we don't know what led David to write Psalm 133, but we know David understood unity, and we know that David understood disunity. And so he writes Psalm 133. And with all of that in mind, I want you to see where we're going in this passage. I want you to see the three things that we're going to talk about. Number one, it's a biblical truth that unity is good and pleasing. Good and pleasing. Number two, unity is a blessing poured out by God on his people. And number three, the blessing of unity carries with it two incredibly important implications. Number one, it's a biblical truth that unity is good and pleasing. And so in contrast to that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced disunity in uh, a job that you had, in a relationship, on a team that you were a part of? You guys may not all be sports people, uh, but when I was in high school, I spent a lot of time playing sports, um, and I actually played basketball, and I know that when you look at me, that's exactly what you would think. That guy was a great basketball player, but in high school, I had the opportunity to play basketball. I went to a small school, so we really could play any sport we wanted to, and I remember as my 10th or 11th grade year, um, we had this team that was incredibly disunified, right? Everybody on the team wanted to get playing time. Everybody on the team wanted to score. Everybody on the team wanted to be in the game. I'll never forget it, right? And so the whole year was just spent with all of us sort of fighting one another and wondering why we weren't getting to be the star player. And I remember just how much this uh, dissolved. We were um, playing a game in a school called Briarwood, which is out near Thompson, and, uh, and, and it was terrible, and we should have won, uh, and we lost to this team. And, uh, and after the game was over, things just melted. Like one of, the players co- uh, one of the players' fathers came up and punched the coach in the face uh, because he was so mad that his son didn't have enough playing time. And we're in the locker room uh, fighting with one another. Like the players are fighting with one another and uh, talking about how could we lose this game, and I'll never forget, I looked at one of the guys and said, I didn't lose this game, you lost this game, right? And that's not what you say to a teammate in the middle of that. Fast forward a year or two, and our basketball team had the opportunity to be coached by this uh, basketball coach from Kentucky. It was when I was a senior, he came to Augusta to coach uh, and teach at Curtis where I was going to school, and he was an incredible basketball coach, but what made him... Uh, an incredible basketball coach is not the fact that he understood basketball. What made him an incredible basketball coach is that he understood how to mold a team into a group of people that were all pursuing the same goal. That everyone understood the big picture goal, the big win. The most important thing is that we win the state championship. 
And along the way, all of you are going to have a role to play in that win. Everybody has a role to play. You all have something to contribute. And he organized us around a much bigger picture. And and we went from fighting against one another to fighting for one another, right? We went from individual glory to team glory. And we won the state championship that year, something the school had never done. I I don't think the guys had ever won uh, guys' state tournament uh, in basketball. And we were able to accomplish that, not because we were the best talent, or partly because we had some really good talent, actually, but because he organized us around a goal. We worked together as a team. My goal was usually to sit on the bench and watch everybody else play, but I was on the team. If you've experienced disunity, then you know firsthand how pleasant and good it is when unity takes place. If you've experienced disunity, You know how good it is when unity occurs and everybody's working toward the same goal and everybody understands what we're about and and how much we can do together. David attributes two qualities to unity here. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David's not saying it's just pleasant. He's saying it's pleasant and it's good. It's pleasant and it's good. Unity has the moral quality of goodness. It's good to experience unity, and it's pleasant to experience unity. It's so important for us to remember that this unity is something that comes from God, but it can be so very very easily fractured by God's people. Unity can be taken apart by gossip and slander, by backbiting, by infighting like our team was doing, by nosiness by sexual sins, sin brings disunity. And not just for those sins that directly attack this unity, but even those sins that bring collateral damage, right? And David pauses here, and he calls people to worship and to recognize and to remember that unity is good and pleasant. He calls people to appreciate the goodness and pleasantness of unity and not take it for granted. And so a quick point of application, Psalms 133 was written primarily for God's people to sing and worship, but that doesn't mean that the application of this verse stops here. Any person at all who would claim a relationship with God, but who would intentionally pursue disunity for their own reasons, be they for personal gain, political gain, or supposed ethnic gain like we saw in Virginia over the last few days, In pursuing the opposite of something good, they are pursuing evil and sin. Anybody who would pursue disunity for their own reasons, for their own purposes, is actually pursuing something evil and sinful. But as a believer, if you claim the name of Christ, unity is what we're aiming for. That's what's good. That's what's right. Disunity is a terrible thing. Now, that doesn't mean there'll never be conflict, right? The presence of unity doesn't mean the absence of conflict. There are times that we have to lean into conflict and deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. But pursuing disunity for your own gain, for your own purposes, is so very evil. Moving on to number two, unity is a blessing poured out by God on his people. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about the poetic structure of Psalm 132 
how that structure leads us to see, to see Psalm 132 for what it is, sort of a plea to God and, um, and a response from God, a, a petition to God, and an expectant declaration of faith that God was going to do something. And I talked a little bit about how ancient Near Eastern poetry deals in structure and parallelism and repetition rather than rhyme and metered verse. And the same thing is going on with these two images that we see. I'll explain a little more in just a second, but stay with me. Verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. This is a picture from Exodus 29 of an Old Testament priest being anointed with oil as they were offering sacrifices to God. The oil is poured on the top of the head. It runs down on the beard and the cheeks and onto the robes. And it's really a picture of blessing being poured out as God's people are worshiping and sacrificing, right? The priest has offered the sacrifice and the oil is poured on his head and it goes down and it's a picture of God's blessing. Verse three, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore, right? And so the, the poetic imagery uh, changes to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a mountain in the northern part of Israel. Some people actually think it's where the transfiguration of Jesus happened. Uh, we don't know that for sure. But it's this huge snow-capped mountain uh, right in the middle of a dry and arid plain in the northern part of Israel. It was the tallest mountain in Israel, a mountain which was well-known amongst the Israelites for having extraordinarily heavy dews in the morning, even though it's surrounded by an arid and dry desert. And so there's this sense in which Mount Hermon is a blessed place because of the rich flora and fauna that resulted from the heavy dews coming down on the mountain, right? The repetition here, stay with me, the repetition here, the, parallel, the parallelism here is sort of missed in English. But when David writes in the first part of verse 2 and then the last part of verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down. The second part of verse 2, running down on the collar. And then in verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains. The word for running or falling down here is actually the same word repeated in Hebrew three times. And because of this repetition, the emphasis becomes on something descending from above, flowing down from above. And so the implication from the poetic structure and the use of the words repeatedly is that true unity is a gift that comes from above down onto God's people. It's not something contrived or created, even though we must work to protect it. It's a blessing much more than it is an achievement. It's a gift. So in these two pictures, we see pictures of the blessing of unity, a blessing that God pours out, a blessing that comes from God. Right? Number three, the third thing I want us to see in this passage is that uh, the blessing of unity carries with it two very weighty implications. Two very weighty implications. And so let me just start with this. Our relationship with God is indeed very personal and very intimate, but it's not private because we're all a part of a family. As Eugene Peterson said, the question is not, am I going to be a part of a church, a community of faith, but rather, how am I going to live in my church or my community of faith? The Israelites, as they're singing this song, they're marching upward to Jerusalem 
together to worship. And together they're singing as they're going up how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Together they were singing as they're going up to worship, right? Do do you see it there? Psalms 133 is one of those songs that they sang together as they made their way upward to Jerusalem to worship. They were not on a path of worship alone. They were not on a path of pursuing God alone. They were not on a solitary path. It's a group traveling together, sharing a common purpose, a common path, striving toward the same goal. A, A life of unity is really only found within a life of community. And we are called into community when we're called into Christ. We're called into the church when we are called into Christ. And the call was not meant for you or me alone. The call was meant for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at the hands of Nazi Germany, in his book, Life Together, said this, You are not alone, even in death. On that last day, you will only be one member of a great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. The call, even in Psalms 133, for God's people is to move together, to move forward in unity, not in solitude. Remember the horse and carriage illustration? Let's be pulling in the same direction. Let's move in the same direction with care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's bear these burdens together as we share life and learn to increasingly submit all of life to Christ. As we're on the journey of discipleship, like these pilgrims are on the way to Jerusalem, let's do this together because that's what God's word calls us to do. God's word calls us to a life of unity. And so on this everyday journey of discipleship, let's be passionate about unity and community together. And the implication of this leads us here at Redemption to be very passionate about things like missional communities, about DNA groups, about our life together as a larger church. It's absolutely imperative that we realize that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually accomplished something. He didn't create the potential for something to happen. He actually did something. And part of what Jesus did when he died on the cross was to create and set apart this new group of people that we call the church, the redeemed people of God. They were set apart by Jesus, by his death, and then given a purpose by Jesus. And what makes the church unique and what makes the church unified from God above is that we were saved by Jesus alone and set apart by Jesus for Jesus' purposes, not for our own, right? We're not unified because we belong to a denomination. We're not unified because we belong to the same tradition. We're not unified because we share a common theology, or because we all belong to the same church, we're unified because Christ Jesus set you Christ's death set you apart as a believer to be a part of his body, to be a part of his purposes. Jesus actually accomplished something on the cross related to his church. He died to set us apart. And when he set us apart, he gave us a purpose and a mission. And so what unifies his people is his death and resurrection and the job that comes with being part of, set apart by Jesus. Makes sense, right? 
And so if we take that one step further, in the everyday life of Redemption Church, for us, missional communities are places where we together learn how to worship and submit to Jesus in all areas of our life by learning how to love one another as a family, by, by worshiping Jesus as servants who serve others, by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ as sent missionaries on the mission that he's given us. It's why we want every church member at Redemption to be a part of a missional community. Because when we do these things, when we join together, when we do life together, when we pursue this discipleship path together, we're actually creating this thing called gospel fluency that we're talking about. Involving yourself in an MC is connecting the truth of the gospel, the truth of Psalm 133, that it's good and pleasant for brothers to live together in unity, the truth of Psalm 133 that ultimately looks forward to Jesus, that he set us apart for his purposes. It's connecting that to the everyday realities of life. We were meant for unity. Unity is found within community. And therefore, let's get in community and pursue what Christ has for us. Let's make it a priority, right? Implication number one of the blessing of unity is that we were made to do this thing together. Not on our own, together. Implication number two is this, unity takes work. Unity is a blessing, it comes from God, but it takes work to make sure we don't fracture the unity that Christ created for us. We must be forgiving to each other Realizing that we're all beggars, we're all sinners, we're all completely undone without the God. The gospel is the great leveling field because we're all less than worthy without it. But the gospel also gives us the tools to work to maintain that unity. And David says how beautiful it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. If you want to look it up, you can. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. It might be up there. It says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Right, So the question then becomes, how do we do this more and more? If an implication of the fact that unity comes from God, unity is a blessing from God, we have to work to maintain it. How do we do this more and more? How should we love one another more and more? How should we pursue unity more and more? So I'm going to give you some real-world practical examples. Number one, let's avoid gossiping. The New Testament directly warns against gossiping. Now, I don't think that this is a, a big deal in this church. It might be, and I just don't know it. Uh, but the New Testament warns directly against gossiping in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. The Greek word translated gossip means to whisper or to be a whisperer. And so the focus is not on the falsehood of what is said, but on the fact that it needs to be surreptitious. It's not open and candid and forthright. It has darkness about it. And it doesn't operate in the light of love, right? It's not aiming at healing, and instead it stokes the ego's desire to be seen as right without playing by the rules of love. Let's avoid gossiping, right? That's one way to practically pursue unity among our midst. 
Number two, let's recognize the grace that was given to all of us in Jesus. None of us are worthy of that grace. None of us. And until we rightly understand that we're not worthy of it and that it is a gift from God, we won't be able to give that grace to others, right, until we see our own need for it. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's recognize that God has graciously saved us and accepted us. Now, we're not worthy of that grace. And I think once we understand that, it's a whole lot easier to extend that grace to others. Let's speak criticism directly to each other if we feel the need to speak to others about it. And here's what I mean. Let's go straight to someone to deal with an issue rather than going to another person to talk about an issue, right? Rather than talking about someone, let's talk to someone. The point is not that we will always agree on everything, especially the practical application of gospel truths on a daily basis. There may be differences of opinions. But Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It may not be possible, but we should certainly try. Let's speak to one another instead of speaking about one another. Number four, let's look for and assume the best motive in the other's viewpoint, especially when we disagree. Let's fill in the gap with trust and grace and not with suspicion. When Paul deals with disagreement in Romans 14, one of the things he appeals to is that those who are on opposite ends of practical convictions have identical motives. Listen to what he says. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Christ-honoring passions, Paul says, can unite us, right, in spite of our differences of application and differences of opinion. Let's look for and assume the best motive in others' viewpoints. Let's fill in the gap with trust and love, not with suspicion and doubt. Number five, let's be more amazed that we are forgiven than that we are right. And in that way, let's shape our relationships by the gospel. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Luke seven forty seven. the one who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, think more of your own sins and how amazing it is that God saved you than you do about another person's flaws. Right? Psalm 133, David rightly prizes and values unity among the people of God. David recognized that it's pleasant and that it's good. It's pleasant and it's good. Unity is a blessing that comes down from God, and that unity carries with it several implications for us. And part of the implications that it carries to us is that unity comes from God, but we must work to maintain it. We must work to keep it in check. We must work to not let our unity be fractured. All right, let's avoid gossiping. Let's recognize the grace that was given to us in Jesus. Let's speak criticism directly to each other rather than about one another. Let's look for and assume the best motives in the other's viewpoint. Let's be more amazed that we are forgiven than that we are right. 
Those are some real world, very practical things that you and I can do on a daily basis to connect the truths of the gospel, the truths of Psalm 133 to our everyday life. Let's be amazed that Christ has done something for us. Let's celebrate that Christ has done something to forgive us and to unite us together as a people. Our world around us <laughs> needs to see that love and disunity that comes, I mean, that love and unity that comes from Christ more than ever before. And, and so let's be about that. Let's love one another, right? Let's pursue that unity. Let's recognize the blessings and the gift that have come down to us from God through Jesus, and let's pursue that unity. Let's pursue that grace with one another. We're going to move into a time of response. Every Sunday here at Redemption, we respond um, in a couple of different ways. The band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in some songs, give us an opportunity to worship through singing. Uh, I would invite you, if that's where you are right now, if that's where God has you, then worship and sing and joyously proclaim the truths about God as we sing them together. Um, If you're here this morning and God is working in your heart Uh, In some way, God has specifically put his finger through the Holy Spirit on something that you need to deal with, then I would encourage you to deal with that by sitting where you are and praying, by talking to somebody, whatever it is you need to do, let's let's deal with those things, right? Uh, We're going to continue to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where as an act of worship, as an act of continuing worship, we can give and respond in worship by giving. And as well... We're going to take communion together. Um, The reason we take communion together is this. Scripture tells us um, that taking communion together as a group of people and doing so, we're remembering what Christ has done for us and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. We're remembering that Christ has done something very real and very valuable for us. We're remembering the gospel and we're proclaiming that we believe it. So if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a part of this body of faith or not, God gives you the freedom to do so. I would encourage you to come down the middle aisle here, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and Christ's blood that was shed for us and proclaim together that we believe it, that the gospel is true, it's real, and Jesus has done something for us. Um, So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue on. God, thank you again for the opportunity we've had uh, so far to be together, to hear from your word, to pray together, sing together, and even now to continue to respond to what you would have us hear, that you would respond, that you would have us continue to respond to the work of Christ. God, I pray as we respond, as we worship, as we take communion, as we give, whatever we do in this time. God, I pray that you would continue to lift Jesus high, that we would continue to be drawn to you and changed because of Jesus, because of Jesus alone. Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.